0: That's the book. That's for you. Just, just released.
1: It's also formatted in such a way that it's attractive to me. Well, that's good. Written by you, meaning that it's not, uh, only words. There's color and photos.
0: (laughs) And like worksheets and things like that.
1: This is awesome. What do you think is the number one thing that I'm going to get out of it?
0: Um, you know, when you're talking about like, how do I approach figuring out new things to do with like the assets I have? Right. That's what that's for.
1: Valuable if I give it to other people too?
0: Yeah, even better if you tell them to buy their own.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I will.
0: Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, experience, and design. I'm your host, Justin Dobb, and on this episode, we get real about the innovation in real estate. Stay tuned. Where do you get it? Amazon? Amazon. I'll send you a link. Dude, Although when, you, can when just, did you publish
1: this? It just this week. Really, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. That must feel good. Does indeed. There you are. <laughs> are you getting a ton of hits on social media?
0: I'm um, just, uh, just. Tinder. Posted for the yeah, <laughs> Tinder.
1: No, there will be no swiping.
0: No swiping either way. First, say, be very serious and tell me uh, your name and uh, and what company uh, you run.
1: So my name is Thaddeus Wong, and I'm co-CEO of App Properties.
0: Right on. And what is App Properties?
1: App Properties is the largest sales and marketing company of real estate in the Midwest.
0: Nice. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about really is, um, you know, we are an experienced design company, and this podcast is about uh, innovation, experience, and design. And in my history with you is that I've seen you really approach um, creating value for your company and for the brokers and agents that work for you in creating a better experience for those brokers and agents, is that correct?
1: That's correct. Not only a better experience for them, but also they then distribute, hopefully, a better experience for their customer.
0: So well, how, what was your, when you were starting the company, um, give me, actually, why don't you just go back in time and tell me a little bit about like what prompted you to do that and what, what was going through your mind when you were like, how can we be different and how can we be more successful?
1: So it's interesting in residential real estate because the agent is an independent contractor. They're not an employee. And as the independent contractor, I was the driver of my business and I have a business partner and we work together and collectively at the company we were working with, we ended up being probably 70, 80% of the revenue. And because of that, I still felt like I worked for that company. And that wasn't making sense to me because it felt like if I'm generating 70, 80% of the revenue for this organization, why is this organization not working for me? And when we came up with an idea on opening a company, that was a general premise. It was, how do we behave in such a way where we are servicing the agent and we effectively work for them. So we were gonna turn the tables and we as the company were going to service the independent contractor, the real estate agent. And we thought who best to do that besides a real estate agent who knows how they wanna be treated and what services they need and what their customers are looking for. So that was the general thesis when we got started and the primary focus of differentiation at the beginning was marketing, uh, design, uh, marketing of the specific home, marketing of the specific agent and the company. And we did a very good job at that. And we got some good momentum and we were able to stand apart from our competitors. And the second iteration of App Properties was a focus then on technology. How do we build our own technology to service our agents who were our customers and that our agents can use to get, provide a better experience for their end customer? And we started focusing on that early on. And I would say it was almost like, a mistake. We couldn't find the technology that we really wanted. And the problem was is anytime we purchased software, it wouldn't integrate with other purchased software. And so we just started solving our own problems. That was that was an anomaly back in 07, 08 to actually think of hiring an engineer and writing code and building a solution. And fast forward to today, we have a platform for agents to plug into, which is fully integrated and includes a CRM, what we call a DMS, which is a deal management system that carries a contract from execution to closing, uh, a, a digital CMA, a lot of tools that are universal for the servicing of customers, but are all integrated so that it makes the agent's life a ton easier. We didn't stop creating and developing our marketing and differentiating ourselves through different types of marketing. So we've kind of evolved into this um, mid-sized technology company that has a marketing arm that services agents, but treats them like the customer. And that agent then uses the marketing and technology to provide a better experience for their client. And remembering that the agent is an independent contractor, it allows us to grow and scale significantly better than if they were employees.
0: So you mentioned the CMA, and I know what it is because we worked on it. Um, But can you talk to people about that, what it is? And I'm going to preface it a little bit with, um, it's really to facilitate a conversation. It is. And so why don't you talk a little bit about how that conversation played into how it was designed.
1: So the CMA, uh, the Comparable Market Analysis, helps a seller understand what other properties that are similar to theirs are selling for, what they're on the market for. And what we're provided for by our MLS, which is our, our association, is a static. Effectively, you print out the sheets and you bring them to the customer like it was 1985. And we wanted to come up with something that was, number one, interactive. And we also wanted to add a component where we could measure the client's behavior while they were interacting with the CMA. So we created this digital CMA. It worked really well. The agent was able to put together some data points and some properties that they would forward to the consumer before meeting with them to talk about the pricing of their home. The consumer would open it up and they would engage with the technology. And it would actually record, the technology then records the behavior of the consumer. So while they're spending time on the CMA and looking at the properties we selected, it's also measuring the time that they spend on properties we didn't select, that they found on their own. So by the time the agent gets to the home to meet directly with the client, they've got this great piece of information where they know the client is interested in looking at different properties to understand the value of their home. But more importantly, they know which properties they spent the most time looking at to help relate to the customer more and be able to answer that customer's experience without having to ask them all the questions to get that information. So it is a huge differentiator because our agents go in with something digital and they also have the ability to print it out if their customer is looking for that. But all of their competitors are using either a static printed out version of a CMA or an inferior quality digital CMA that doesn't do any consumer recording whatsoever and doesn't give any benefit back to the agent.
0: So you've spent a lot of, not just hard-earned cash, but time really addressing kind of the agent's needs in these tools. What are those conversations like when you have agents who have maybe been working at a different, for a different brokerage, or at least with a different brokerage, and then they come over and they see these experiences? What are their reactions like?
1: It's interesting. You know, there's a lot of fear because adoption, a lot of these tools are out there. And so if the agent themselves were wanting to provide a better experience for their customer and the company wasn't providing it, they themselves would have gone out and found ways to improve the product or service that they were giving their customer. So in a lot of ways, there's an enormous amount of appreciation. We have a fabulous training and education department, so we make it really easy for them to learn. There is some fear, though, because a lot of these agents haven't used technology as a solution for their customer or for their own organization. So when we offer it to them, they're happy. Uh, Once they get over that fear, we give them very, very good training and they see the results of what it feels like to be able to offer a better product to your client and that always feels good. When you're a service provider, any time you can provide better service to your customer, yes the customer feels good but you also feel good because you feel more authentic in the fact that you're providing something better and that's the competitive side of it is how can I be better than the others that are providing the same service or similar service.
0: So without revealing any kind of future enhancements that you're going to build, where do you see this technology going in the next five or 10 years?
1: So I think even closer than that, I think that real estate agents in general need to begin to provide a stronger value proposition. Bottom line, they need to provide more to the consumer. Why? Because the consumer is seeing alternative ways to sell their home for a lower cost. Now, there are some consequences into choosing those, but they are still valid market choices. So in order to compete against that, which is effectively just commission suppression, our agents are going to have to offer more services and more tools to the consumer so the consumer can value what they're paying. So one of the things we're focusing on is we are focusing on reducing the cost of home ownership. And some might say, well, how do you play a role in that? You could do that by just lowering your commission. That's a transaction. The cost of home ownership really revolves around, of course, mortgage, interest rates, et cetera. Also insurance. We have a partner that helps provide lower insurance quotes. And I've learned a lot about insurance in the last year. And that's a fabulous way to reduce your cost to tie in your auto, et cetera. And what I learned is that insurance companies, when they quote a policy, it has a lot to do with their current balance sheet. So a year later, you could get the exact same policy and coverage for significantly less. So we're going to start integrating, lowering, and helping our customers continuously monitor their insurance policies to guarantee that they're paying the least amount of insurance. The second big one, especially in Chicago, is taxes. How do we work with our homeowners to ensure that they're paying the least amount of property taxes as possible? Why do they want to pay Little tax, we all wanna pay a little tax, but it also increases the value of their home. The lower the cost of home ownership, the higher the price of the home. So working with individuals to lower their property taxes is a second segment. So we are beginning to incorporate some consumer-facing tools into platform which is what we use uh, inside of App Properties. And we're, those will be the first few things that we go. And the other side of it will be involving the consumer in the transaction, which will help make their, their closing and the entire process a bit more seamless and uh, take less time.
0: So we've talked before about potentially seeing you know, technologies like blockchain being involved in these transactions. And um, one of the things that I've been speculating about is will some kind of blockchain technology kind of influenced the, um, uh, what, what, what do they call it? The title, uh, help me out here.
1: Title, effectively, yeah, title so,
0: insurance. So, so, yeah, so it's
1: title, title companies.
0: In, yeah, so all of the you know verification, right? The provenance of a property, uh, the ownership, um, verification that now is why we have a lot of attorneys involved in title insurance and wondering if you see any of those kind of businesses coming online.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the first step of blockchain in the transaction, the homeowner transaction or real estate transaction will be title. I think title insurance companies, there is always going to be title insurance, but the way that the information is transferred will be, I believe, taken over by blockchain. I think that that's probably going to happen sometime in five years. Uh, but I think it's going to move really fast, the rate of change will be fast, and the value to the consumer is incredible. Um, it's an unpenetrable, decentralized program that you can rely on. So there's, it's going to change a lot of industries, and it's going to force a lot of industries to modify and incorporate blockchain into their solution. I think title is going to happen first and foremost.
0: So I'm going to have you put on your uh, futurist hat then. So when you have this technology that makes that side of the transaction, seamless, transparent, what opportunities does that open up for the way someone might approach purchasing a home?
1: It's interesting because I think that the, the other side of it, aside from purchasing, you know, what, when you look at an individual buyer for their own use, that's one purchaser, you've got an investor that's buying for a long-term hold or to remodel and flip, and um, now you're seeing big venture capital and big corporations starting to get into that iBuyer program. And that's become more relevant in areas in Arizona where you've got a lot of similar housing that are track houses. It's harder to adopt in Chicago. But I do believe in the future that the iBuyer will be a big part of our market because it's going to offer a seller an easy, fast, simple way to put their property under contract. Now, that I buyer, that buyer needs to have enough margin to fix it up and make a profit when they sell it, especially if it's gonna take a lot of time and you have market time and unpredictables that they're, they're gonna to have to be in. So that seller is always going to have to be willing to sell for a little bit less, but there will be a percentage of the population that chooses that and that likes that as a solution. That being said, we always have hope. You know, and that's a hard one. Most sellers think their home is worth more than it is. <laughs> and unless you go out in the open market at a price that's where that is the true market price or higher, you've eliminated all hope of it selling your home for a little bit more than what it might be worth. Because it's really worth what someone's willing to pay. And there are times you put a property out there and you find the perfect time and the perfect person and you're able to sell that house for more than it's worth. That happens. And I think that'll always happen because maybe this buyer needs this specific house or it spoke to them. Who yeah. knows? But I don't see the iBuyers eliminating the real estate agent, but I see them being a new prospective buyer for the seller and a new opportunity. And the cool part about all this stuff, some of it is disrupting our industry. So why would it be cool? The cool part is that it benefits the consumer. I'm a big believer that anything that benefits the consumer is the right thing. Because, and if you're not working to benefit the consumer, you're working against the market. And anytime you work against the market, you won't last.
0: So talk to me a little bit about how iBuyer works. So I've got a very basic understanding, and that may mean I have no understanding. Mm -hmm. So um, it's basically a giant fund, right, that is purchasing properties and doing short-term kind of flipping of those properties?
1: Yeah, it's a fund. It's Zillow is an iBuyer now. Uh, A lot of the major corporations that service agents or real estate are getting into it. Effectively, they come and they say, hey, uh, this is where we think your house is worth as is where is right now. This is what we think your house is worth with some updating and modifications. Um, We're going to take off a percentage uh, that it's going to cost us to sell the home. We're going to reduce the value by what uh, it's going to take, the amount of time it's going to take to do it. And we'll give you a cash as is where is offer closing in 30 days. Open Door is a great one. They've got a CEO named Eric Wu. I personally think he's genius. The guy's got amazing work ethic and very bright. Um, now all of these, these are still today, a fraction of the market. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's so overly hyped about everything, but they are, they are having some traction and it is the beginning. And the rate of change now on things I think is so fast, you know, Uberization was maybe, I don't know, a year seven months until nobody he'll, nobody called taxi anymore. We're just seeing the rate of change happen so fast that I do think that in a shorter period of time than most people predict, iBuyers will be a solution. And there'll be a few of them. Sellers will call Zillow. They'll call Opendoor. uh, They'll call another local. And I will t- still say, though, that it's going to take a long time. In the areas where it's track homes, where all the houses look the same, they're all built at the same time, and it's sort of like one size fits all, they'll be able to get some traction there. When it comes to Chicago, which has been around for a lot longer, and we've got homes yeah. that are 150 years old, it it makes it very, very difficult to scale that. So, And you also have to find sellers that just say, screw it it works well in arizona and florida because you deal with a lot of seniors that have passed away their kids get the house it's easier for them just to sell it to an i buyer and give give up a couple of dollars most people the home is a big part of their life savings and so they're really not willing to give away that percentage for an i buyer and give the opportunity to them usually they're not in that much of a hurry and they'd rather experience a traditional sale to make sure they're maximizing the sale maximizing the amount of money in their pocket
0: so that strikes me as an opportunity for machine learning you know, kind of uh, AI to come in to a market like Chicago, right? If you apply machine learning, because there's, you know, the variables are so complex that it's really tough to do, you know, on a human scale or manually, that you'd be able to solve that kind of variability problem with enough data points. Um,
1: you can, and it gives you good predictive analysis on what changing, even what a color change would be in a wall, how that would change the value of a home. So, and also the big piece of it. That yes, you have AVMs giving you the general value of a home. It's Zestimate made that incredibly popular, but the technology now is also measuring all of because all buyers are online. Yep. We have one hundred percent of the markets whose activities are measurable. Yep. you know what people are looking for, buying where, uh, you know, in what price range. You know the perfect property that it's in the greatest demand, so you can actually make adjustments based on that too. Um, But AI is a big component of it. We're working with a company to add to our own personal application the ability through video to determine the age and uh, a type of appliance furnace so we can help create uh, tool for sellers to know when to change their filters or their furnace, to be able to have a link to when to upgrade their appliances. And eventually, companies can provide that information to uh, you know appliance companies that can say, yeah. hey, we know you have Frigidaire 2014. The life cycle of that is eight years. It's 2021. We can give you a 20% discount now if you want to put all new appliances in your home. So, it's amazing at what you can do, how you can plug into a video, into a piece of AI, and you can find out effectively it knows. It knows everything you see and then some. Because you yep. see the appliances, you might be able to know the brand, but this AI knows exactly what year the brand, that brand and that make and model was set and exactly what the installation needs. And it, it is pretty amazing. And I think that it's making some big inroads right now, but over the next 24 months, you're going to see some solutions for sellers they are going to be awesome. And I think it's going to be very easy because it's going to be revolved around taking a quick video, which everybody does every day with their telephone.
0: Yeah. And thinking back to your kind of uh, comparable market analysis tool, right? So all of a sudden there's another piece of information that can go into that, right? Because yeah. when you're looking at, you know, a street view uh, photograph of a home that's on the listing, uh, it's very different than what you're finding on the inside of these.
1: Yeah. And it, what's interesting is that a lot of homes are using video, a lot of agents are using video to market homes. So now you already have the videographer there. You already have that cost built in of that time and all you need to do is plug the same video or just make sure you take a you know, separate camera and just do this things that you need to have read and plug it in and you can have all that information for the buyer. It's also, it's good from the buy side because many questions can be answered with AI.
0: Yeah. So, do you see any traction with VR solutions or any kind of you know remote um, you know 360 video or what? What? What are the?
1: I think we've sold two homes in the last ten years sight unseen. And one was new construction and it didn't exist yet. So it's actually, (laughs) if you count that, there was nothing to see except our brochure. So I still think that people are not there. They're not buying homes without physically walking through them. They're also usually in the area when they're buying a home because they're getting to know the neighborhood. So they're not having to deal with like, you know, transferring from another country or another state. And it is such a big purchase that people want to see, because it's not just the home. Remember, it's the homes around the home, it's the intersections around the home, it's the parks around the home. So if it was just the home, like a pair of socks, no problem. But because it has everything to do with the neighborhood, the location, other amenities, and what's around there, you know, yes, you can use, you know, you can, you know, follow the Google and take a walk down the block and check things out. But people want to see it, feel it, hear it, smell it, make it feel good if it's going to be their home. They don't want to take that risk.
0: Yeah. So part
1: of the process, too, in yeah. buying a home, people like that process. Most of the things we're pulling the process out. Okay. In home buying, we've already made it so efficient because nobody's looking at a home that they haven't already spent time on online and they're not already aware of everything down to the crime stats they still want to feel the doorknob, open the door, understand the sense of entry, the safety, et cetera.
0: So you've seen a lot of change in, you know, 20 years, right now?
1: Uh, 23.
0: Wow, amazing.
1: 23 as an agent, uh, 19 with that.
0: Yeah, so uh, generations change. How do you see what's desirable in a home shifting with these generations that are coming on? What experiences are they looking for in a home that, say, you know, you or I twenty years ago weren't looking for.
1: Well, twenty years ago, the you know in the '80s we always bigger the better, right? <laughs> I mean, it was almost the it was the, the we were the pre-Kardashians. We uh, loved big houses and amenities in the homes, and and these days when people are looking. Yes, there is still a segment of the population that wants that, if they want to show that or they want to enjoy that. But the majority of the population, which is what you're seeing, they're shying away from those big, giant homes yeah. that come with big, giant landscaping bills and maintenance bills. And you know, when it needs remodeling, an enormous house to remodel, it's not gone down to the small house where you have the tree house with the little room, although there's a small people, percentage of people that like that. But it's really gone to what you need you know, and people are now needing less. They're requiring less storage. They're investing their money in different things. I think that there was a day we were investing in brands and there's still a segment of the population doing that. But people now are investing in experiences. They're investing in travel. And a big piece of it is they're investing in exercise and healthcare. And as healthcare has gotten more expensive and exercising opportunities have gotten more vibrant, people are spending a big percentage of their disposable income on that. So we've seen... You know, aside from the million plus multi million dollar homes, and even those, they were not required to be overly large. They're just required to be refined with an intention to detail. But your really average sale of what a person is looking for a two bedroom condo it is much more efficient and much smaller, uh, less storage. Uh, but proximity to public transportation need for parking has gone down dramatically. That's going to be a big shift. You know, we have all these condo buildings that have one or two parking spaces per unit. Yeah. That's completely and totally unnecessary. And theoretically, if you want less congestion, build less parking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. So do you, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that, you know, or even speculation a lot of reporting that millennials don't buy houses that you're, you're getting to a lot of, of their life experience that, that you're talking about how they're looking for homes. Do you find that to be the case that they are not buying houses or they're buying in a different clip or they just want different types of properties?
1: Here's what's funny is that the pendulum has swung. It used to be that renting was less expensive than owning, right? So you would kind of rent if you couldn't afford to own a home, okay? Now, renting is more expensive than owning, Okay, and that which is really interesting because with owning, you get larger space, you own the space, you can make modifications. It does come with some cost, but you are using it as an investment vehicle by paying down a loan. So Mm -hmm. over the course of five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you actually have a saving vehicle as long as we have a growing economy. So I think that's gradually changing right now as rentals have gotten so expensive. I think there are a group of people that are like bag it. I had a terrible experience in 2008. I'm terrified or I saw my parents have to almost go through bankruptcy because of their devaluation of their home. I'm not getting into it, but that'll change. I mean, think about it. Our memory is very short term when it comes to, you know, we remember the 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 tech boom, or the tech bust of yeah. 2000. We were talking earlier about how we reevaluated companies in 2001s which ones are irrational and which ones are rational well enron happened after that uh, <laughs> you know now we're dealing with we work so we yeah. still we have a very short term memory when it comes to things that have gone bad so people are now moving towards buying but the biggest issue we have at least in chicago is that we don't have uh is that because people are so paying so much for rentals you don't have a lot of new construction that is Uh, moderately affordable at a market level because if it's working at a market level for a sale, it works great as a rental. So every tower crane is building an apartment building.
0: Yeah. And thank you for giving me the perfect transition here because I did want to talk about WeWork and, 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 you know, I will preface this next conversation with uh, neither of us are experts on, on WeWork and their business model, but you obviously have a different perspective and probably a more informed perspective on commercial property leasing than, Mm -hmm. than I certainly do. Um, it, as I watched this whole thing, there were a lot of red flags for me, even before, uh, I should say today, uh, as we're recording this, WeWork has decided they're going to put off their IPO. They're uh, you know,
1: trading it for Chapter 11.
0: Tra- <laughs> 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 Somebody just telegraphed their opinion. Um, so I, I, I had you know my doubts and suspicions anyway, just given the behavior of the leadership within this organization. And... You know, they were taking a lot of money off the table and it, and, you know, uh, basically touting valuations that had no bearing on the actual um, profitability or even the, you know, net revenue of this um, organization. It just struck me as this seems more like a cult or a Ponzi scheme. Um, And, you know, it's not like the commercial real estate business is new. And we haven't understood the math for decades, right? So um, I'm just curious what your reactions to all of this are, and 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 how you look at this company.
1: The interesting thing is, as it's growing, been growing, I've been constantly waiting for what makes them different or what makes them better. In Chicago, we have a lot of shared office. We've got a lot of different companies. I have a building where Industrious is a tenant. Is a tenant. They have shared office, which is kind of like a more glamorous WeWork. They provide a more luxurious environment to their user and it's a little bit more expensive. But there's no threshold of entry for this whatsoever. It can be done by mom and pops. It can be done by funds. It is very, very local and it can be scaled. But at the end of the day, it's going to, there's going to be compression Period, because you're going to have too many people entering the space because there is no threshold of entry. These companies have borrowed and raised so much money to build it at a scale where there is no trajectory, there is no inflection point, there's no hockey stick where you say, okay, great, now 90% of the rest of these uh, this rent is going to be pure profit. That doesn't happen in WeWork. So I never understood the tech valuation. I never understood anywhere close to that valuation, and now. When the proof is in the pudding, when they say, hey, the public needs to look at our finances and give us a value. And now if the public is passing on a value that's 22% of your last raise, that's a huge problem. What's a bigger problem for them is moving forward. What landlord is going to execute a lease with WeWork? What landlord is going to give them tenant improvement dollars? Like I don't know what they're feeling like right now. And that's the thing with magic is like once you find out how to do the trick, it's no longer cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And they're like wildly levered up, right yeah. Based on this evaluation that we understand now, at least, looks, at least at the, on the face of it, to be, you know, wildly overblown. So suddenly now, they're, they're not 100, 200 percent levered. they're five, 600 percent levered.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's why I said I was being facetious, but not really when I said Chapter Eleven, because what is really the solution? Uh, the guy who ran it and owned it, he got rich. You know, he pulled his cash off the table. Even with uh, SoftBank, you know, I'm sure is written into their contracts, and they're raising that they can, you know, ratchet it down so they can pull their cash out. It's still not going to be enough. And then, but what's the future? So now, anytime something, anytime somebody learns the trick. Now they're looking at everything else having that's that's similar to that trick and how easy it is to recreate and how easy it is to do it. Well, if something's easy to do, it's really not worth much. And right. so I don't, I don't see it. And all of these other companies were looking at WeWork's valuation and saying, "Wow, if we could be worth just 50% of them." Well, now they're seeing that WeWork, the public market said, "Hey, we're not even going to give you 22% of your yeah. last raise." So this is going to have a little bit of a ricochet throughout the industry where people are going to have to recalibrate their financial models, and it's going to be harder to raise money for all of these shared office companies that were growing. And I think. You know, they are one of the largest tenants in Chicago. How is that going to affect the value of commercial buildings in Chicago if all of a sudden WeWork is not able to continue paying the rates that they, are, they create an obligation to pay?
0: Yeah, it's, it's going to be
1: fascinating mm-hmm. to see
0: what happens because it, it seems, as you read the news today, it seems like, oh, well, this is over. But I'm, no. I'm in your camp that no. this is just the beginning.
1: It's just the beginning because they're not the only game in town. You've got a lot of other companies and a lot of other funds and a lot of other offerings that have the same exact model. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so it, I think it's you know this this is sort of like the the preface that gives you the reason to read the book, but all the cool stuff is going to start happening now, which actually has interest in how the market reacts to it and with the cumulative effects of this happening.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, so you're telling me that having beer on tap and an espresso machine is not worth. 40 or 50 billion dollars.
1: Not unless you go back to prohibition.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, if you look at, you know, what do you think is the next big play in 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 this space?
1: It's interesting because you see retail, you know, we have in America we have something like I can't remember what the stat is, it's something like 10 Seven, eight, nine, ten 10 square feet of retail per American. And Europe has, you know, uh, two and Japan has like one. And so it's obviously, you know, we are way over retailed. So we've got too much retail and we have too many parking spots. So what are we going to do with all this space? Yeah. Uh, you do have office growing, but office grew in the last five years, a lot of it, because of WeWork where we had this idea of shared office space and they would take these giant buildings and pump up these values. So that now you're pulling that out of the equation also. So the idea is how are we going to reshape the retail with the parking into something that is beneficial to a society? while also profitable in the capital markets. And I think a lot of people are focusing on that. And I honestly don't think there is a solution. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's too tough. much retail, there's too much parking, there's too much physical space, which means that for a, long, a period of time, construction halts outside of specific locations yep. that, uh, that need it. Um, but I don't know what we're going to do with all of this space. Some people have turned it into senior citizen housing, or they've turned a lot into residential that would support specific retail. Other people have turned some of these buildings into schools. People are looking at the parking lots. Look at Los Angeles. How much horizontal asphalt parking lots there are in Los Angeles is an enormous percentage of their land base. Yeah. Like, What are you going to do with that?
0: Well, right now, they're still driving all over. Yes, it.
1: <laughs> right now they're still driving all over. But five years, you know that Stephen Hawking said that there was about 500 years left until he predicted that potentially, you know, we'd come to a close here on the planet Earth. And then right before he died, I think he changed that analysis to 100 years. Now, I don't think he might have had a trick up his sleeve and he said, hey, I know people value what I say, so I'm going to say this just to help <laughs> them get their act together. Maybe they'll take me seriously now. But there is a, you know, sh- we have a short term on this planet and some of these problems might not even be solvable before we're not here anymore.
0: Yeah. I know that like in Chicago, we've still got some zoning laws Mm -hmm. that are kind of antiquated as far as, you know, you can't build uh, this residential building without having some retail space on the first floor. And we've seen um, up in like Lincoln Park, there's a pretty substantial development that they put in 180,000 square feet of retail and uh, on uh, a strip of road that was filled or say filled. It's emptied of retail already. There's Mm -hmm. vacant. Um, Do you think there is, I mean, I think the answer is going to be no, but do you think there's anything you can do to reverse that a little bit?
1: You know, in in our neighborhood, in Lincoln Park, where you see it, that retail that just opened up, it's into an area that was already, if they wouldn't have put any retail in there, all of the retail on that block, expanding two or three blocks, would have thrived. It would have brought in all of these new service providers for this incredible increase in density. But because they provided its own retail, it just sort of made the rest of the retail worth less and less. And the problem is, is you have an individual owner for each of these buildings. So, until there is a politician or a social movement which gives increased density for these neighbors to come together and sell to one large, to get one large replacement building, a new building on there, that would be one of the smartest things Chicago can do because it would increase the value of real estate, increase the value of taxes coming in, it would spur construction. So, we would now have building bringing people into the city to increase density for. Uh, the existing retail. That's something that has to happen. In order for that to happen, there has to be a really thoughtful discussion on how we change the zoning. And then after we change the zoning, how we create a mechanism for neighbors to come together to increase the size of their parcel to build bigger buildings. And I don't mean more vertical height. I know areas, I'm not into the verticality in a lot of these historic neighborhoods but being able to build one building on seven lots is far more cost effective than building seven buildings on seven lots
0: and, and you don't mean a single single owner uh, seven lot home like we've seen no 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 I'm and,
1: talking about on you know on b zone <laughs> yeah, streets that yeah. have retail on the first floor that there's no need for retail on the first floor anymore. We have enough nail salons, dry cleaners, you know
0: yeah, so how could you conceive of that happening that kind of um, bringing together of individuals within a neighborhood or you know
1: i think that it would be very hard but i think if you had a local politician perhaps even an alderman who's responsible for all the zoning in a specific neighborhood come up with a white paper or a solution for the specific blocks that are really you know have blight they have you know maybe in some of these blocks there's 30 percent of the retail that's filled and they create a solution where we have Uh, you know, no parking requirements. Uh, Smaller, it's called MLA, minimum land needed for per unit. And you can design these apartment buildings or condo buildings that are really beautiful and improve and that are the same height as all the buildings around them, have a setback, have a sense of entry, enhance the neighborhood, but you're able to get more units, not supply parking, not supply retail on those blocks. And when you look at that, what that can happen is that all those blocks, since the buildings would be torn down and not used, makes the land worth the same. So once you can do that, now, it doesn't matter if a person has a graystone, a Brownstone, a frame liquor store, they're all worth the same. Yep. And they're all worth more than what the most expensive one was worth. So now you're enhancing the dollars, and these people are going to sell this real estate, they're going to pay off their debt, they're going to have the cash to either go spend, save, or... Or, or starker to 1031 into another piece of real estate. So you're spurring an economy. You're bringing in construction, you're bringing in people, you're filling up, the, you're bringing greater demand for retail, but it's gonna take somebody needing to do that. I think it's a fairly easy solution, but so far, not so good. You know, because it seemed to me, it seems like, wow, that's an easy solution you can bring to specific neighborhoods and you can bring this to any neighborhood. This solution it's not a one size fits all, but anywhere you have long blocks with individual buildings that are a very little, you know, practicality. Uh, you could bring this solution. You could offer greater open space for a neighborhood. You could offer par- you know parks with it yeah. because you can add more density and less space. And so a piece of it could be public space in the middle of a block for people to rest. You know, for if it's you know you can have a more a neighborhood can service a lot of different people: older people, young children can have a place to play in the middle of a block while bringing in more people, more tax revenue, and more value. To me, it seems relatively, I don't want to say easy, because we can't even get a casino. We can't get a lot of things done. (laughs) It seems almost ridiculous. But this is an idea that uh, I came up with while walking my dog and seeing all this vacant retail. So I don't know why anybody can't come up with this idea.
0: So so I'm just trying to understand exactly the mechanism here. So basically, you create, whether it's a political or governmental, I should say, governmental organization that allows this pooling but at a guaranteed minimum.
1: I think that you put the the values on such a place that encourages the neighbors to work together because the more they can bundle, the more they can get for their property. Um, and you have to understand the economics and where you're supplying what number of units per square foot mm-hmm. uh, and the minimum required size of those units. Now we're not talking about you know all these buildings that would look the same. We're not talking about controlling the architecture. Yep. We're talking about controlling what's on the inside and controlling it in such a way to spur the value of the land and to make it worth more, the more neighbors that can bundle together. Because these guys own these buildings, a lot of times they can't put a retail tenant in there because their rent has gone down to 50% of their performer. when they finance the building. They would have bank issues, if they put in these tenants. So yeah. a lot of people say like, why don't they just put somebody in there? Well, a lot of times they can't, because if they don't put a tenant in there that is paying the same rent as when they finance the building, a lot of times these loans have covenants in them and you will you know, violate those covenants and you'll be right. required to pay down debt. You can't do that. Right. Um, and a lot of people would give them these old owners of individual buildings who would give them an opportunity to exit uh, and make more money than they would uh, doing nothing.
0: It almost strikes me as an waiting for an options market, right? So like you'd be able to sell the option to sell to that larger organization. Once someone has all the options, you can execute yeah. or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would. I mean, when you talk about, you know, how much support you'd get from construction, from existing retail, you know, what pressure would put on, you know, it puts on pressure on public transportation. It puts on pressure on public schools because you get more people, but you get more we need more people in the city to survive. Yeah. And we gotta move more people in.
0: Right on. So is there anything else you'd like to, to talk about today? About uh, what's happening in in the world of real estate and the the experience of real estate.
1: You know, real estate's interesting because everybody wants to get into it because from my business they look at the the total dollars spent on commissions for the the transaction. And they say, like all startups say, if I can just get 1% of that, (laughs) we'll be golden. Um, But I think what people are figuring out over the last eight years that we've had this really strong, you know, last 10 years, really, we've really had this growth and recovery. And a lot of great people have come up with some awesome ideas. And there are some industries that have been fairly easy to disrupt. Uh, you know travel agents uh you know, taxi cab drivers yep in our business i like it because everything's been done to improve the consumer experience have improved greatly uh, but we haven't seen a full disruption or a full shift and i think people are still coming up with it so that gives us another 5 10 years to come up with a good idea and any time where you haven't solved something it keeps it fun it's like a puzzle where you're just not done with it i mean what's the worst is when you put the last piece of the puzzle in you're done you got to buy a new puzzle <laughs> so right now we're probably about half filled and you know, we're still putting the pieces together and and there are a lot of there's a lot of interest in our industry right now so i think we're going to see a lot of good changes and uh you know a lot of a lot of new ideas
0: Right on. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Thaddeus. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure. And um, that is the end of Brilliant for today. Thank you. This has been another episode of Brilliant. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Brilliant is a production of Bagnani, an experienced design and strategy firm. To learn more, visit m a g n a n i. Com. And as we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, we've released a new book, Innovate, Activate, Accelerate, a 30 day boot camp for your business brain. It's available on Amazon and you can find out more at manani.com book.